Salt Company, how we doing? Hey, my name is Austin Claver, and I just got to say on the front end, thank you guys. It is so fun to worship in this room. You, you guys already have encouraged me in the faith, just seeing what God is doing here in the blessed city of Iowa City. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, we're going to open up right away. We're not going to waste any time to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. But as you're opening up there, I want to ask you this question. Do you want Jesus to return? Do you want Jesus to return? Or do you want to accomplish some more things in your life? Do you want Jesus to return? Or do you have some things you want to, want to do first? We're going to come back to this question. Look at me in 1 Thessalonians 4, we're picking up in verse 13. We, this is Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we do not want you, Thessalonian Christians, to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. He begins, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. What does Paul not want us to be uninformed about? He doesn't want us to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who have died believing in Jesus. Why? So that we won't grieve like those who have no hope. And so tonight we're going to be talking about that hope. And more about that hope, we're going to be talking about the return of Jesus Christ. And so the title of tonight is The Return of the King which is also the title of my second favorite movie behind Saving Private Ryan before Ratatouille. We'll talk later. The return of the king. Jesus as the king of kings is returning. Do you want to prepare? And if so, how should we prepare? We're going to look at three ways to prepare for the return of our king First, we're going to look at encouraging one another with our future hope. Second, we're going to see how Paul tells us to stay on guard. And third, we're going to remember who our king is. So let's look back in the text. It says, we do not want you to grieve like the rest who have no hope. And this could be confusing. Is Paul telling us, I don't want you to grieve? No, that's not what he's saying. He's almost saying the opposite. He's saying, I want you to grieve. Right, other places he says, mourn with those who are mourning. Weep with those who are weeping. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We see Jesus as our model in John chapter 11, weeping over the death of his friend Lazarus. Jesus knows that he's the resurrection and the life. He knows that he's going to raise this man from the dead. Yet we see Jesus weeping. He's crying. He's mourning. Why? Because he knows this isn't the way it's supposed to be. That death is the great enemy of life. But there's something distinct about Christians grieving. Christians ought to grieve with hope. So how do we grieve? How do we still have hope in the face of death? Let's continue. Verse 14. For if we believe, guys, this is such good news. If we believe that Jesus died, 
and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. How do we still have hope in the face of death? Here's what Paul has to say. He says, if we believe that Jesus died, I saw somebody, if we actually believe that Jesus died on the cross, when he cries out, it is finished, we actually believe that he died upon that cross, that as the spear went into his side and blood and water came out and he was pulled off to the cross, his heart was no longer beating, he no longer had air coming into his lungs, that he was buried in a tomb, that we're going to celebrate this Friday, if we believe that Jesus Christ died, and if we believe that Jesus rose, if we actually believe that Jesus had breath in his lungs again, that his heart started beating again, that Jesus actually stood up and then he folded his linens, such a cool part of the resurrection, and he walks out of the grave appears to hundreds of people, ascends to the right hand of God, if we believe that Jesus died, and if we believe Jesus Christ rose, then we must also believe that those who have died with Christ will also rise with Christ at his return. Amen? And so Paul, he's writing to a particular audience. He's writing to these first century Thessalonian Christians. And so we're going to see that these Thessalonians, they're new believers, a brand new church. A lot of them were Gentiles, which just means non-Jews, non-religious people. And so they're receiving the gospel like, this is amazing news, salvation through Jesus Christ. But then they have to face this question, what happens when you die? Right? Maybe people are getting old, they're dying, and they're like, what happens? Or maybe it's through sickness, or maybe it's actually through severe persecution, and they're having to face this question, what happens when they die? Because their former worldview would say something like this, once you die, your body's just made up of matter, and once you die, there's nothing after that. And so they're seeing people that they did life with grieving, grieving differently, grieving without hope, and so Paul's writing to them, he's comforting them, there is hope. And it's not all that different. If you think about a 21st century atheistic worldview, if we just kind of trace this down, that there is no God, therefore the, the beginning of the universe was the result of a random collisions of atoms and molecules billions of years ago, and humans have just kind of evolved. We're just kind of here now. We've kind of become the apex predator. If we believe that that's true, then you have no soul. You don't bear the image of God. Therefore, when you die, there is no hope. If we trace that worldview, that atheistic worldview through, that's what it's going to say. And I got to thinking, what about other religions? Can every religion be assured of their place after their death? Can they be assured? And I've been reading a book about a missionary, him and his family, three boys, they, they moved to Nairobi, Kenya, late 90s. And they were serving this Somali refugee population. Late 90s in Somalia, I just am figuring this out. Terrible civil wars breaking out, economic collapse, clans rising against clans. There's a huge drought that breaks forth, and so thousands of people are dying, thousands of people. And so he gets access into the country, and he starts being able to get food out to thousands of people 
a day. But as he's there, he's realizing the hostility towards the Christian faith. And he knows four believers, four Christians in this entire nation, and he starts taking communion with them. He starts breaking the bread, starts opening the Bible, starts singing. And he talks about soon after that, all four of those Christians were shot and killed on the same day. And he's grieving like the psalmist. He's like, God, why? How long? And he returns home to his wife and three boys to a terrible tragedy of his 16-year-old son dying. He's like, God, I'm out here serving you on the mission field. I'm giving my life to you, and this is what's happening? How long will this go on? But this, this funeral that was proceeding, before it happened, he got a knock on the door. He got a knock on the door by his Muslim friend, Omar. And Omar says this, I've walked here from Somalia. I had to come to help bury our son, Timothy. He walked five days, a hundred miles, through the desert, through the mountains, over national borders, to come to this funeral. But I, I say this story because after the funeral, in returning to Somalia, Omar, he describes this funeral to his Muslim friends. And this is what he has to say. He said, Nick and Ruth buried Timothy, a son who they loved with all of their hearts. And during the service, many people were talking about him. People were singing. People were crying. But everyone there seemed to know that Tim was in paradise. And he has this moment of authenticity where he starts pleading with his Muslim friends and he says this, why can't we Muslims know that our loved ones are in paradise when they die? Why is it only these followers of Jesus know exactly where they're going after death? And what does Paul say? In verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, Christian. That is where our hope is after death, is in Jesus Christ, that he defeated death. But how will Jesus return? Right, that's a good question. How will he return? Maybe this is a brand new concept for you. You're like, Jesus is returning? He's coming back? I know he, he died, he rose, he ascended, he's coming back. How will he Return. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend. Right? The curtains will be pulled back from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. How will Jesus return? This is not for the faint of heart. He's talking about a battle cry breaking forth. There's these shouts. There's these trumpets roaring out. And to pump myself up for this sermon, any Lord of the Rings fans out there? Oh, some of you are like, no, more. And some of you are like, more. If, if you're one of those fans, Helm's Deep, all right? It's this battle where the good guys are against the evil, and it looks like the evil enemies are going to take over the good guys. It seems like there's no hope. 
And then there's this little dwarf Gimli, favorite character. He blows this horn. He's like, he starts sounding forth. They all start looking east at the dawn, and they look up, and there's Gandalf on a white horse with a staff. And the dawn is coming behind him, and this light just shines on the enemies, and they're completely annihilated. That's what this is kind of like. Our leader coming back on his white horse. And if you've read Exodus, second book of the Bible, it reminds me of Exodus 19, where the Lord God is calling and blessing his nation Israel. And he's doing it through a really ordinary guy named Moses. Moses doesn't like talking in front of people. Moses is like, why are you choosing me? But he chooses Moses. And he calls Moses up this mountain. And so Moses is trekking up this mountain, and it's not a normal mountain. It's called Mount Sinai. And this mountain starts quaking. It's shaking. Fire is bursting forth. There's, there's smoke rolling off of this mountain. And it talks about this ram's horn, this trumpet sounding forth as God is descending to come and talk to Moses. This is epic. As we anticipate the return of Jesus Christ, yet is the most terrifying thing if you're on the wrong side of the king. In the Thessalonians, they seem to have a question. Who will rise first at the return of Jesus? And Paul answers that. He says, those who have died in Christ, those who have died already, will rise first when Jesus returns, and then those who are alive, and they will be taken up together. But here's what he's saying, is we will always be with the Lord. Those who have died in Christ will always be with the Lord. That is something to stake our lives upon. And so how then does Paul inform the Thessalonians to prepare for Jesus to return? What do we do now, Paul? All right, we, we, we shouldn't have hope. What, how do we prepare? Look with me in verse 18. Therefore, whenever there's therefore, he's talking about something he just talked about. Therefore, encourage one another. Okay, therefore, encourage one, eno- one another with these words. He's saying specifically about the return of Jesus, encourage one another with these words. That is point number one. Encourage one another with our future hope. Encourage one another with our future hope. And things might look dark. We might be in the battle, but the king's coming. So how do we get through the dark, messy, grieving parts of life? How do we get through the sickness and the illnesses both mentally and physically? How do we get through the brokenness and the distortions of relationships, both family and friends and across the world? How do we get through this? How do we get through the agonizing feeling of homesickness where no job, no vacation, no relationship will ever satisfy us. Here's what we do. We remind each other of our future hope. Our true family. Our true king. And if you've ever, I'm using a lot of movie illustrations. I'm not really that much of a movie buff, but college students, right? You guys like movies? Anybody ever seen a war movie? Two people, that's great. 
if you've ever seen a war movie, here's what, almost, here's what happens almost every war movie. Things get bad. All right, here's where the climax is coming up. The problem's coming. Things look really dismal. There seems to be no hope. Oftentimes, they're actually in the trenches. And you're thinking to yourself, there is no possible way out of this. There is no possible way to get out of this situation. It looks like there is no hope whatsoever. What is the most effective way to continue in the trenches today in that scene? Here's what they do. It is almost so anticlimactic, but so beautiful. Here's what they do. They remind each other what they're looking forward to. A warm meal with a loved one, pushing their children on a swing, taking a walk through the meadows in a peaceful nation. How do they get through the trenches? They look at each other and they remind each other of what they're looking forward to. So what does it look like to encourage one another with our future hope? I have three things. One is grieve with brothers and sisters who are grieving. And I'll be honest with you, Salt Company, I'm not very good at this. I'm reading this text and I'm challenged. I'm not very good at grieving with those who are grieving. But it's hard. It's hard because we we look at Jesus as the one in which we're following and we see that his love for us by nature is sacrificial. It's substitutionary. He takes upon what we deserve on himself and then he, he dies and he tells us to go and love one another. So what he's saying is, go lay down your life for someone else. And when you grieve with someone who's grieving, what actually happens is a little bit of their grief comes upon you so that their grief could just be lessened ever so slightly in that moment. But that's what Christ is calling us to. He's saying, go towards those who are grieving. It's better to be in a house of mourning than a house of feasting. I don't always get that because I'm like, I'd rather be at a wedding than a funeral. It's saying, Christian, grieve with those who are grieving, yet do so with sharing the hope, the good news again and again. Christ died. Whatever you're going through in this room, Christ died. He's the great empathizer of whatever struggle you're going through. Whether that's relationally, whether that's just lack of clarity, Jesus Christ has died. And he rose again. So that whatever you bring, whatever grief you're bringing into this room, you have the hope that one day when you come face to face with Jesus Christ, every tear will be wiped clean from your face. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more grieving. There will be no more brokenness when we come in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the third thing, a little more happy. We do things that remind us this isn't our home. We do things that remind us this isn't our home. You know the best way to taunt Satan is to sing praises to Jesus. When we're coming together, we're not just singing these songs, but what we're doing is we're lifting our praise, we're lifting our honor and our any glory that we could ever give to Jesus, and we're saying, Jesus, we are reminded that you are coming back. And the second thing we do is we feast together. Best way to prepare for the future, best way to prepare for heaven, have a feast together. 
One of the most spiritual things you can do is share a meal with someone else. Well, I'm a poor college student. I don't really have a great home, you know? Here's maybe, here's maybe what you can do this week. Invite someone you've never had over to your place and make them ramen noodles. It'll be so spiritual. Laugh with them. Do life with them. Be their friend. Remind each other that this isn't our home. And I tell you what, the more you share meals with people, the more you'll be reminded that we're longing for our banquet feast in the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus Christ. And the third thing, as we prepare, play. Play. I hope I'm doing something awesome when Jesus returns. Maybe it's playing soccer in the VPL in Jesus Christ that the, the clouds are pulled back and we're on the pitch playing. And I'm like, Jesus, this is awesome. We're just going to keep doing this and you're going to be here. Or maybe you love playing the guitar or you love singing or you love playing the drums. Maybe that, just do more of that. And if Jesus Christ returns, you're like, sweet, Jesus, I'm just going to do this in your presence for all of eternity and you're going to be there. Or maybe it's going on a walk with a, a friend. It's getting nice out. And that just reminds you that this isn't our citizenship. Just start going on a walk around a park, anticipating that Christ is coming. And that is what we yearn for. So when is Jesus returning? Great question, Salt Company. You guys don't have it figured out? Chapter, one, chapter 5, verse 1. About the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you. For you, you, you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. When will Jesus return? Apparently, the Thessalonians already understand. We don't know. We don't know the season. We don't know the day. We don't know the time. And this almost mirrors perfectly Jesus' teachings in Matthew 24, where he's talking about the day that he will return. And Paul describes Jesus' return like a thief. And let me ask you this question. Maybe this is another uh, proverbial thing like Dalton's Ecclesiastes 9. Is a thief really a thief if the thief tells you when they're coming? No, they're not a thief. And what will people be saying when Jesus returns? This is really daunting, guys. I think this is a real part of the culture in Iowa City. Real part of the culture in college, come, live these days up. Here's what people will be saying when Christ returns. Peace and security. Eat, drink, be merry. You, you only live once. Live it up. Oh, those Christians. They're always talking about Jesus' return. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, Jesus will return. But I have things I'd like to do first. Is that you? I know I can find myself in that. Oh, Jesus will return, but I'd like to get the most out of college. Jesus, I'm really looking forward to you returning, but can I at least experience marriage first? 
Jesus, I, I know when you come back, that's when the fullness of life will be. I know you're coming back, but can I just get like a really good career, you know, work hard? Jesus, can you like hold off your return until I go on my dream vacations, I live where I want to live? Jesus, can you hold your return until I retire, get old, become about 85, then you can return, maybe. Jesus will return. Blah, blah, blah. And what's the outcome? Guys, this is sobering. What is the outcome? Paul says sudden destruction. It's too late. Billionaires will be eating caviar on yachts. Peace insecurity. Full transparency. I've never given birth to a child before. <laughs> Haven't. But here's what Paul says. Like a thief, the outcome will be like labor pains. And here's what he means by that. One, labor pains, you don't know when they're coming. You don't know the hour when they're coming. And two, the process isn't exactly a desirable pain. This is incredibly biblical. Genesis 3, we see the fall of humans. And what's the consequence? Labor pains. It represents the groaning of the human condition. Let me ask you this. Would you rather have peace and security in this life? Or peace and security for, for all of eternity with Jesus Christ. So what does it look like to prepare for Christ's return? Look at me in verse 4. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark. For this day, to surprise you like a thief. For you, you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then, let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake and be self-controlled. For those who sleep, they sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. What does it look like to prepare for Jesus' return? Point number two is stay on guard. Stay on guard. And I love... I love when Paul writes letters to people because here's what he does. He tells you who you are before what you ought to do. And so here's what he's saying. Thessalonians, you are children of the light. This is your identity. You are children of the light. Therefore, you ought to live like children of the light. So what's with light? What's the big deal about light? The Bible talks about light, this idea of light as God's revelation to mankind. It represents purity and rightness and separation, set-apartness, goodness. In the first page of your Bible, if you open it up, in the third verse, the first thing God speaks into existence, he speaks over this dark, chaotic water. And what does he say? Let there be light. And he saw that light separated the light from the darkness and that it was good. 
And humans, what do we see after that? Fall into complete darkness, generation after generation. But God sends a rescuer. John 12, what does Jesus say? He says, I am. I am the light of the world. And then most shockingly, in Matthew 5, he he gathers his disciples, he gathers his close friends, and he says this. It's so shocking. He says, you, you are the light of the world. So what does it look like to live as children of the light? Paul writes three ways to stay on guard as we anticipate the return of Christ. First, he says, stay awake. Stay awake. Does that mean no naps? I hope not. I love my 26-minute naps. But what he's saying is, spiritually, stay awake. Right? You're going to be reminded of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's handed over to be crucified. He's with his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John. And three times he says, stay awake. And guess what happens? Three times they fall asleep. He's saying, stay awake. Be alert to what God is doing in your life and around you. He says in Matthew 24, but know this. If the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would be awake and alert and not let his house be broken into. If you know when the thief's coming, or if you know that the thief is coming, you will be alert. Second, he says, be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. Last week, you guys talked about sexual immorality. This week, he's talking about drunkenness. What are these states? These are states where your mind isn't in the right order. It's not thinking clearly. What is he saying? Stay self-controlled. Because temptation is knocking at the door. God says to Cain in Genesis 4, Cain, Sin is crouching at the door and it wants to devour you. Stay alert. Be self-controlled. And third, he says, put on the armor of God. The breastplate of righteousness, or the breastplate of faith and love, the helmet of salvation. You guys know that song? Breastplate of righteousness, the shield of You know? No. Come to kids camp this summer. He's saying, put on the armor of God. And what is this armor made up of? It's faith, love, and hope. The triad of the Christian faith. Faith, hope, and love. But guys, I'm not going to lie. I read this. And I think we talk about the return of Christ. And we can have a tendency where we can think, are we called to just be doomsday preppers? You You know doomsday preppers? Where they have these old hatches under the ground, they live in a basement, they have non-perishables, they have candles by light, and they're just like, the, the world's ending, let's just bunker down, let's not do anything, let's not go out into the world. Is, is Jesus saying, bunker down until I return? Well, here's what he also says when he says, you're the light of the world. He said, you are the light of the world, Christian, a city situated on a hill. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. But rather, what do you do with the light? You put it on a lampstand so it gives light for all who are in the house. What he's calling us to is to stay on guard 
yet stay missional. Invite as many people in to the good news of Jesus Christ that he's returning. So you might be asking, what does that actually look like? Sometimes I hear these things, I'm like, what, what does that practically look like? Well, I have a real-life example. I was getting my haircut two weeks ago. I do that about every six months. I, I go get my haircut. We're about five minutes in, my hairstyle, she, looks, she asks me, she goes, are you friends with Cole? I'm like, Cole Williams? She's like, yeah. I'm like, yeah. And she says, man, I've talked with Cole for years. And we have had the best conversations. He asked me the best questions, and I can tell out of love, he genuinely cares about what I have to say. And she proceeded, she says, and we don't even have the same beliefs. But what I can tell is that no matter what's going on in his life, his faith never seems to waver. I admire that. And I left getting my haircut just smiling. I was so encouraged and I was so challenged. How do we wait for the return of Christ? Maybe it just looks like whoever does your hair over the course of years, just continue to talk about Jesus. Or maybe it's your classmates. Or maybe it's the people in your intramural sports. Maybe it's your family. Who in your life needs to hear about Jesus' return. Lastly, where is our strength found in our waiting? Look with me in verse 9. For God. If you have your pen, underline that. This is when things get really good. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Again, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are doing already. How do we prepare for Jesus' return? Salt Company, we remember who our king is. We remember who our king is. While we were busy trying to make earth heaven, God brought heaven to earth in his servant, Jesus Christ. While we were living in darkness, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the light of the world. And while we were still enemies of God, while all of us were still hostile toward God, Christ Jesus died for you. For God did not appoint us to wrath, to eternal, sudden destruction. But hallelujah, to obtain what? Salvation. Christian assurance of being right with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we close, Saul Company, what would it look like if we were a people in the face of grief, in the face of darkness, what if we were actually people who encouraged one another about our future hope? Whatever we're going through, guess what? Jesus is returning, and we will be with him for all of eternity. Who needs to hear that in your life? I know I need to hear that again tonight. What if we were a people who stayed on guard against the darkness of the day? 
Temptations will rise. What if we were people that said, Jesus, I'm actually going to take you at your word. As you call me to be the light of the world, I'm actually going to live in the light. And third, what if we were people who were constantly reminded of who our king is? Who is our king? Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. You guys pray with me. Jesus, we want a proper response to your coming. Lord, we want to be a people who stay on guard, who when you return, we will be like the homeowner who's ready, who's saying, Jesus, I'm prepared for you to return. And Lord, we also want to anticipate the day that you return. The day where all of our grieving and all of our mourning, all of our joys will come into completion when we see you face to face, Jesus. Make us a people who anticipate that day with joy and delight. And as we anticipate your return, may we be a people who sing your praise. Lord, may these songs be spiritual in the sense that we're crying out to you, Jesus Christ, as we anticipate your return when you will bring us home. Lord, I pray for the person who's asking the question, do I have hope beyond the grave? Do I have hope beyond the certainty of death? And God, I pray that you would seek that person out tonight. And you would, for the first time, allow them to believe that you died and that you rose. And there is where our hope is. We love you, Jesus. Be praised and glorified. Amen.